Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number four on October 18th, 2016, coming to you out of the Low Technology Institute recording studio in St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you for joining us. Today's main topic is trade, exchange, and the economy. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup, research updates, and our DIY feature. This week we're talking about sourdough and how to make your own starter. Well, let's get right into it and talk about the economy today. In the last few podcasts, we've been talking about the variety of support systems that help make our society possible. Every large-scale society through history has had a variety of support systems, and the economy, or trade and exchange, is one of them. A lot of these ideas, especially collective hubris, comes out of a recent book that I wrote, Why Did Ancient Civilization Fails, available now on Rutledge. So far, we've talked about the environment and agriculture in the last two podcasts. Next week, we'll be talking about social organization, and the week after that, resilience to catastrophes. The point I want to make with discussing all these different systems is that they're interrelated. When one falters or does well, that affects the other ones. And so we have to look at how trade and exchange is linked to the environment, agriculture, social organization, and resilience. And that's what we'll be doing this week. Before we get going... Why don't you take a moment to look around you and pause the podcast if you need to, but try and find something that hasn't been built or transported by fossil fuels. I have trouble doing this. I ask students to do it. I ask people to do it as an exercise. It's really difficult to find things that weren't made or transported by fossil fuels, and there's a reason for that. 96% of our transportation energy comes from fossil fuels. 89% of our industrial production is fired by fossil fuels, so it's really no surprise that it's hard to find things that didn't have to do with fossil fuels in their production or transportation. The economy, though, is more than just moving things around. The economy, for us, fulfills our basic needs, food, shelter, and it also fulfills our wants, stuff we enjoy having, stuff we enjoy using. Our society runs on money, and money has become such a ubiquitous trading medium that people often mistake it for a real thing. Our system has what's called fiat currency. And fiat currency is a type of monetary exchange that has no inherent value, right? Paper, money, has no actual value. As a society, we agree that a $100 bill is more valuable than a $1 bill, even though from a material standpoint, they're practically the identical product. Some people want to go back to the gold standard, but gold is just another type of fiat currency. It doesn't actually have a lot of value It's not more valuable than copper for electronics and other things. It's a good semiconductor, and it doesn't tarnish. But other than that, gold has no real intrinsic value, not at the rate that we ascribe it. And there's nothing wrong with having a fiat currency in society. It helps us keep an even mode of exchange, right? It's it's easier for me to carry around a whole bunch of dollar bills than, say, a chicken when I go out for a beer at the local pub. If I had to bring a chicken to exchange for the beer, that would be kind of awkward. The dollar bill or whatever sort of currency we're using, a credit card, it's so much easier and more convenient. So there's nothing inherently wrong with it. But again, technology changes society and how society interacts with that technology and how it decides to use it, that's what's important to look at, not this technology being bad or good in and of itself. It's indifferent. It's a technology. It's a thing. It's how humans interact with it. And for us, In our society today, money does help satisfy wants. We can certainly understand having 
a substantial amount of money makes you feel confident that you're going to be able to buy the food, shelter, clothing, etc. that you need to feel comfortable and to survive. But unfortunately, for many, wealth itself has become a goal, and we've lost sight of the idea that it's just a measuring stick. Let's take a brief look at one of the most complex societies in the ancient world, namely the Roman Empire, and how their economy worked. In the beginning, Rome was expanding. It conquered new provinces, and raw material and booty flowed into the center of the empire. In the heartland, finished goods were made, and then exported back out to the provinces at a profit. The heartland also provided security. The Roman army created what was called the Pax Romana. This was the peace within the Roman Empire, and it allowed trade to boom. The economy grew very quickly. All of this power emanated out of the center, with resources streaming into it. Once the Roman Empire stopped expanding, however, the military had to spend its time on internal squabbles and rebellions. It had to protect the borders also. Tax revenue dried up. Provinces learned to make their own finished goods, and they ended up trading amongst themselves. In the beginning, Rome was making a lot of the wine, and they had to export it to Gaul, later France, but obviously France has become a major wine-producing region. Once they didn't need the heartland anymore, why would they pay for expensive imported wine when they could make their own good wine? This type of model with the center and the periphery, or the core in the periphery, is outlined in Emmanuel Wallerstein's World Systems Theory, which largely discusses late history, and you can certainly check that out online but a lot of people have applied it to the ancient world, and I do as well. So if you want to look that up, that's Emmanuel Wallerstein, World Systems Theory. At any rate, over time, Rome didn't really adapt to the new economic reality, and it ended up collapsing. Byzantium, which is at Constantinople or present-day Istanbul, did adapt, and it became a mercantile empire. And the tale of these two cities really shows us the ability of one to adapt, that's Constantinople, and one not to adapt, Rome, which ended up being the center of a collapsed empire. Now we can draw lessons from this abbreviated history, and it is abbreviated. I spend a whole chapter on this in the book, but it's still a useful lens through which we can view our own society, of course. The industrial world has stopped producing things. Much of what is now considered the first world was the first to industrialize during the Industrial Revolution, and they produced all of these finished goods what they exported to their colonies and made quite a lot of money in the process. Well, now we've exported the actual production to these poorer countries. It might be that China or Bangladesh or a lot of these other areas where a lot of production is done is going to realize that, hey, we don't need the center anymore. All America is doing is consuming. They're sending us money, but we're producing all the goods. Why don't we just trade amongst ourselves and keep the material goods and raise our own standard of living, right? That's a possibility. That's similar to what happened to Rome. The only thing that America is offering right now is its dollar and military might. Obviously, we have innovation and a lot of that sort of thing, but we don't have a monopoly on that. Before talking about a potential economy of the future, we should really delve deeper into today's economy. And one way that economists look at economy is through three sectors. The primary sector is resource extraction, cutting down lumber, mining ore, catching fish. The secondary sector is the production of finished goods. So that would be taking that lumber and making finished products out of it, boards, cabinets, taking those fish and making fish sticks. That would be the secondary production. So think factories. Tertiary sector is the service sector. So think about restaurants with 
waiters and waitresses. Think about plumbers. Think about carpenters. Think about people who come and do a certain service for you and then leave. That's the service sector. Now, as societies become more quote-unquote developed, they have less primary and secondary sector jobs. And we've seen that in America. We have less resource extraction and we have less factories. And we see a rise in tertiary sector jobs. So we can certainly see that today, many, many people work in the service industry. And an interesting caveat or an interesting side note to working in the service industry is you can expand service industry hours indefinitely. You can always find office work for people to do. You can always find more work for people to do at a restaurant. You can always find more hours for people to do. So it's able to soak up a lot of otherwise free time. That's why we see people working so many hours today, even though we're not actually producing anything. Now, most societies segregate sectors by geography. That is, resource extractions happens in one area, and these are usually poor, marginal areas. Production happens in another area, today's developing regions, and service sectors happen in the most affluent areas. Now, in some sense, it's efficient to segregate geographically because you can get advantages. For example, large-scale logging operations, large-scale mining operations are in some ways more effective or more efficient than small individual attempts. You also have specialization. You have a lot of people in one area who know how to do one thing very well. It lends itself to mass production, which of course has led to the large number of things we have available to us today. But many of those efficiencies that it gains, it loses because we have to transport everything long distances. Sure, mining an ore in one large mine is very efficient, but then you have to transport all that ore to the foundry that makes the steel. And then you have to transport all that steel to the shop that makes the bicycles, right? So it's a, it's a long supply chain, and that long-distance transportation kind of eats away at the inherent efficiencies of large-scale production. One alternative might be vertical distribution, that is, having all three sectors located in each locality, often with people working more than one sector. And now I can hear you saying right now, wait, 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 my region doesn't grow my favorite foods. I don't get coffee. I don't get chocolate regionally. What, you expect me to live without coffee or chocolate? Okay, okay, I understand. But there are certainly some things that do lend themselves to long-distance trade. Coffee, for example, is an excellent thing to trade because it has high value and it transports really well. You don't have to move it very fast. It will keep and it doesn't get beaten up a lot in the transport. So it would be a prime candidate to continue to trade. Other things like asparagus that have a very short shelf life and grow in South America in the winter and get flown by jet up to North America so we can eat asparagus in January, that isn't necessarily the most judicious use of our resources. And of course, not all resources are redundant. That means not every region has every single product or resource. But most regions have resources that can cover the basic necessities of life. Or they could if we tinkered with the economy a little bit. Every area could be largely self-sufficient for food and the basic products we need to stay alive. We just choose not to do that right now in the present economy because we have such a robust transportation network that is supplied by fossil fuels. You might be asking, if it's cheaper to buy things made far away, why isn't that better? And it's a fair question, but there's really two reasons why it's not necessarily better. First, the things that we buy cheaply are made so cheap because of low fossil fuel costs. We can transport that t-shirt that we find at Walmart from where it was sewn in Bangladesh very, very cheaply. If we take away fossil fuels, that 
cost is going to jump very quickly. Second, it's cheap because most places that produce very economical goods have lax labor laws. And we've exported our toughest and most dangerous factory work to other countries because people are willing to do it for much less in much less safe conditions. To go back to our t-shirt from Walmart, we should probably be asking ourselves, how come we can get a t-shirt for a dollar? That seems a little ridiculously cheap, doesn't it? If you look behind things that seem a little too good to be true, you often find a less than rosy reality. So going off of our principles from before, we should really look at natural systems and try and mimic them. In terms of trade, this means largely being self-sufficient for our basics and maybe trading for the extra things we need. Perhaps we could have neighborhood lending libraries for tools and items that usually sit around for 99% of their use life, like circular saws or volleyball sets and camping equipment. What if we had a little lending library in the middle of each neighborhood and instead of everybody owning a lawnmower, you could go check one out from the library. That way, it's being used much more efficiently. We might slow things down a little. Some forms of transportation lend themselves to a post-fossil fuel world, such as scooters, cars, trucks, trains, and ships. Unfortunately, planes are probably not sustainable in that way. Even though we do have solar, human, and hydrogen-powered planes, these are ultralights, and they're extremely slow. And even though someone just went around the world in one of these planes, they can't really carry a lot of cargo, and so they don't seem like a future transportation option once fossil fuels are gone. Individuals, families, and communities can also do more for themselves. Once upon a time, it was the 1950s. And in the 1950s, the ideal was to have one parent, usually the father, working full-time, and one parent, usually the mother, staying at home. The 1950s was a time of economic explosion in the United States. And if you think about it, we only had 50% ideally 50% workforce participation because only one of the parents in a nuclear family was working. Today we see the vast majority of families having two adult wage earners. And while this has certainly helped with issues of gender equality, it hasn't necessarily helped our home lives at all. It doesn't necessarily have to be the man or the woman who stays at home, but having a full-time caretaker at the house certainly was a benefit for the family in terms of getting the household work done, taking care of children, cooking food, there's a reason that so many time-saving devices and plans and foods have been developed for today. After both parents have worked an eight-hour day, they don't have time to come home and cook a full meal, take care of everything they need to take care of at home. I don't see why we couldn't have two parents working half-time jobs and then spending the rest of their time at home doing many of the things that they would otherwise have to pay for, right? If you didn't have to pay for daycare, if you didn't have to pay as much for food because you're preparing a lot of the food yourself. If you didn't have to send your clothing off to the laundromat, if you didn't have to pay to have someone clean your house, you might be able to cut back on the hours you're working and do it yourself with your family, which seems like a lot more fun to me than working at a job that I might not necessarily love just so I can pay all the bills. I mean, can you imagine if we had a, a four-hour workday in America and both parents worked four hours and came home? I mean, just think of what amount of free time you would have. And honestly, if you think about it, I don't have the studies in front of me, but I know that a lot of time at work is actually wasted. Spending time on Facebook, spending time checking your fantasy sports and other social media. I mean, if we really buckled down and actually worked for four hours a day, you'd probably get quite a lot done. And remember, back at a time when we had the same amount of work being done, 
four, four hours per person on average outside the house. We had a booming economy, so there's no reason we can't do that except for the fact that we choose not to have an economy that works that way. One ancient practice that we might want to think about is the Inca vertical archipelago. Now, the ancient Inca lived in a very vertical environment. Over very short distances, one could go up very steeply in elevation, and each elevation had a different ecology, and so different plants and animals were tended and grown in different altitudes. The vertical archipelago refers to a system by which communities at different elevations were linked by trade, and they were able to share what they had in season at the time with the other communities around them with the understanding that they would be shared with when the other communities had a surplus. This helped guard against El Nino and other unexpected catastrophes. So for example, in the highest area, one's growing llamas, and then below that, someone's growing potatoes, below that, someone's growing quinoa, and down by the coast, someone's growing corn, and then there's also fishermen. And so throughout the year, they're able to trade, usually amongst kin groups, up and down this vertical archipelago, and everybody has food the year round. This would be something that we could integrate, right? If people weren't particularly good at producing one thing, they could make that, and then trade it around the neighborhood, and then that would help alleviate some of the ups and downs of the seasonal growing cycle and other things. There are other ways to organize an economy. We've chosen one that depends on fossil fuels, but soon we're going to have to build one that doesn't. It's possible that we could vertically integrate ourselves. Each individual could do more work in different sectors of the economy each day or each week. Additionally, we could reorient our economy to value quality over quantity. Right now, we've built a quantity-first model of economy, and we're much more interested in having more rather than better. And this would just take a change in our societal views about what quality is. We could look for things that are made of high-quality materials that are going to last a long time, that are really functional and simple to make. And we could value these characteristics over high-quantity mass production, ornamentation, and fads, which are really made so that we have to cycle through products much more quickly than we would otherwise. Clothing's a prime example of this. Many of us have really large wardrobes. Wardrobes fall out of style before the clothing is worn out, and this requires replacing a lot of our clothing before it's done. And if you go to the thrift store, you can see how quickly we're replacing our clothing, right? This is tough on the environment, but it's also tough on people because there are people who have to make all the clothing that we're using and wearing for such little time. And so we need to think not just about the environment. We need to think about our fellow human beings who are having to be at the far end of the production of all these clothing. I don't mean to pick on clothing or garment workers. This is true of most products. If it's surprisingly cheap, there's probably a bit of human and or ecological suffering behind it. And I don't want to be a downer this whole podcast, but we really do need to think about things instead of just enjoying it for the bargain. Later in the year, we're going to have a podcast dedicated to this with a guest interview talking about clothing. I think we also have a podcast coming out on uh, textiles specifically. One thing we can do is avoid plant obsolescence. Toasters, for example. I had a friend of a friend who was an engineer. His job was to design toasters so that they would fail shortly after the warranty ran up. Then what would you do? You'd have to buy a new toaster. 
this is good for the economy in how we measure it today by GDP because you're buying a new toaster. But really, it's a bad practice. It's not practical. It's the only benefit is to the company and to the economy. And the economy is how we define it. Another thing we might do is resist neophilia. Ask yourself, do you really like this thing or do you like that it's new? Recently, they came out with an iMac candle. So you can light this candle up and get that smell of that new iMac. We have the same thing in cars, right? The new car smell sprays. It's the neophilia. It's loving something because it's new, not necessarily because of what it is. Uh, this is something that we should really uh, work to change in our society, not necessarily championing or lusting after things that are new just because they're new, but really valuing things for their quality, functionality, and longevity. And we need to go back to non-disposable things. We really need to get rid of the disposable replacements that we've come up with for all of these different things in our lives. I know it's kind of socially awkward, but bringing Tupperware when you go out to eat so you can put your leftovers in a Tupperware instead of risking getting a styrofoam clamshell is a great thing to do. Bringing your own coffee cup to whatever coffee place you go to, that would be a good start too, especially if they're giving you two paper cups every time you get a cup of coffee. We've done this for shopping bags, and now it's cool to have your own shopping bags, right? And it's law in some places. There are other things like that we can do, but it takes a lot of practice to train yourself. I also forget my shopping bags from time to time. Even when we're using a short-term product like a cell phone, we should try and make it last as long as possible. There's a few news stories in our roundup this week that discuss what happens when you recycle your smartphone. Spoiler alert, it isn't as green as the companies make it out to be. Certainly it's one of the better options, but it's hard to break down something like a phone into all the usable parts again. A lot of it does get wasted. Now what about progress? It's undeniable that communications and access to information is one of the reasons for us to be where we are today. I can't deny and wouldn't want to deny that. We've been able to achieve so much progress because almost every person has access to a vast amount of information on the internet. And we're able to devise and develop new things at a rate unlike any time in the past. When the printing press was developed, there was a burst of pamphlets with all kinds of basic information about how to do different things. And we saw an explosion of thought as inventors around Europe were able to share their ideas. The same thing has happened with the internet. However, we've also built into that system a lot of excess. Now, maybe we can conserve the communication network itself and the information accessibility, but with a system that's rebuilt for longevity, with a system that's rebuilt for emphasizing the good bits and toning down the excesses. And this might mean slowing down the proliferation of speed and storage on computers, but it would be nice if we could make and buy computers that are going to last for more than five years before A, falling apart, or B, becoming so slow that they're obsolete. Maintaining this communications network might also save on the need for fuel-intensive long-distance travel. If you don't need to fly to Prague to go to a conference, but instead can telecommute, you're going to save a lot on fossil fuels. So maintaining this communication and information network is really important as long as we pick and choose the things that are really moving humanity forward rather than the things that are simply there to entertain us. We can realign our priorities and still have progress. Instead of competing teams of engineers trying to solve the same problems, 
it might be more efficient to share information. Now, this flies in the face of capitalistic competition. You think, oh, we make two products, say an iPhone and a Samsung, and we have two teams of engineers who are both learning all these new processes and building systems to make the phones do basically the same thing. Well, that's two times the people you need to do it just because they're competing with one another. And now, you know, there are certainly benefits to competition, for sure. But there are downsides that don't get talked about a lot. And that's one of them. We're wasting our time going over the same ground that someone else is going over because we don't want to share. Imagine if we could free up a lot of these minds to think about basic problems for survival rather than the proliferation of smartphones, for example. I'm picking on those today. What could happen if we put our energy towards purifying water or preserving food and its nutrients, reducing our need for energy and creating greener energy? If we put that much effort towards the things we're really going to need in the future and took them away or reduced the amount we spend on the things we think we need today, we would be in a much better position for what's going to happen when fossil fuels become really scarce. That's all I have on the economy today. Next week, we're going to be talking about social organization and how that articulates with the economy and the environment and agriculture. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's move on to the DIY feature. This week, I made a sourdough starter, and uh, there's a post on it last Thursday. But basically, what happens is one mixes water and flour in equal portions and stirs them around and lets them sit out on their counter or some other place with a more or less even temperature. And each day, half water, half flour is added to the mixture. It's stirred up. And over time, beneficial yeasts will build up in the dough and make it acidic and holds at bay other microorganisms that might otherwise spoil the dough. And they make it a really acidic environment. And it gives you that really sour smell that you all know and love from sourdough bread. And this can be used as a leavening agent when you're making bread. And it adds a really great depth of flavor to whatever bread you're making. Now, a couple things to keep in mind. When you first start making it, it might smell pretty bad, uh, depending on what bacteria take hold first. However, as long as it's not discolored, and this is all explained in the blog, you just have to fight through that kind of stinky period, and then you will get to that sour smell. That is wonderful. And on the blog, we tell you how to know when the sourdough starter is ready to use, what flours to use, exactly how to do this. So check out the blog. Also, when you first start baking with it, you'll want to give yourself some time because natural leaven takes a lot longer than store-bought dry leaven. So you'll want to give your bread a lot longer to rise. But this is a good thing. Bread has more flavor the longer it rises, within reason, of course. That's why a lot of the store-bought breads don't really have that deep, rich flavor that more traditional breads do. So I highly recommend making your own sourdough starter. And you know, uh, if you don't have time to do that, you might be able to go to a local bread bakery and they'll give you uh, a cup of starter that you can then take over for yourself uh, using the same instructions as are on the blog. So check that out. There's a recipe for sourdough bread. And yeah, let me know what you think. I'd love to see some pictures of sourdough bread you made. Let's take a look at this week in low-tech news. I really enjoyed a piece from Motherboard discussing kite energy, and I hadn't really heard much about this, but basically um, we've all flown a kite, and you know that when you're flying a kite, it pulls, and you have to use your arm strength to keep pulling it back and forth, back and forth. Well, that energy can be harnessed and put around a generator, and 
According to the article, kite energy could actually produce more energy per area and for a cheaper cost than windmills. And, you know, who doesn't like to look at kites? They're pretty cool. And they're quieter. So you can't have that complaint that uh, windmills are too loud, even though studies have shown it doesn't actually give you headaches. The other thing I like about it is kites might be something one could make at home. And perhaps something we'll be looking into in the future is building your own kite energy generator, because I think that would be really, really cool. If there's somebody out there, an engineer listening perhaps, who knows about kite energy and might know how to miniaturize that to be used on the individual scale, I'd love to hear from you. There's an interesting article on Science Daily about how medieval cities are not too different, sociologically speaking, from modern European cities. There's a few exceptions like the death rate and the birth rate and things like that, but for the most part, um, these cities are actually really similar to medieval cities, which existed before fossil fuels, so that might lead one to believe that perhaps once fossil fuels have settled out of our system, European cities might fare better because they were built with non-fossil fuel transportation networks in mind. NPR had a nice history of the Humble Pencil, which is a great example of low-tech, uh, one of my favorite examples, actually. And they have a really nice interactive page that shows the history uh, of the pencil, so check that out. So those are some of the stories we're following in low-tech news. To see links to the stories we discussed and more, visit the low-tech website, low-tech institute, that's all one word, .wordpress.com, or by following the link in our podcast profile. Now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. We're on the hunt for horse manure, and we're trying to get this winter's mushroom crop going. Uh, we'll have full details of this on the blog, and we'll be discussing it in future podcasts for sure. We've decided to look at the natural tanning of deer hides this fall, and we've begun preliminary research into that project. More on that, again, on the blog and here on the podcast. We also started getting the beehives ready for winter. We went in this last weekend. And the beeves are looking really strong. Uh, they beat back a lot of the hive beetles that they had been dealing with. Hive beetles are basically the equivalent of bee roaches. And we used microfiber towels that work as a trap for the beetles. And I raked out all the leaves underneath the hives so that when the larvae of the hive beetles drop to the ground, they find a inhospitable environment for pupating and growing. And so I think that, that two-pronged attack on the hive beetles really took down their numbers. I can't take all the credit. I have two strong hives, and the bees probably took care of a lot of it as well. They have over 100 pounds of honey per hive to go into the winter, and really good brood, and a strong laying queen. So I think both the hives stand a good chance of living through the winter. Well, that's it for the Low Tech Podcast this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Tech Institute Recording Studio. Our intro music today was The Day Time Ran Away from 8-Bit Empire by Ozid. Thanks, Ozid. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share them as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio, and please give us a rating. It helps boost our audience reach. I'd be happy to have your feedback, which you can leave me on soundcloud.com slash lowtechpodcast, all one word. You can find more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. And also reach me directly at lowtechinstitute 
again, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and take care.